Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. My story is that my parents arrived in New Zealand in 1973. My father had got a job at Princess Margaret Hospital in Christchurch. Mother's parents from Yorkshire, father from Liverpool... I'm a first generation born here, so I was born up north in Whangarei. In New Zealand, every family has a link across the generations to immigration. He spoke English beautifully. He was uh, a, an army officer. He played cricket. He drove a Rolls Royce. He wore a monocle at one stage. He was one of six children. His father, my grandfather, paid for three of his sons to come to New Zealand and never saw them again. Being from Hong Kong, I think, is quite different from being from China. Hong Kong is very westernised, obviously, because being a British colony, and very very urban, so they're both very citified kind of people anyway. The immigrant stories of Perlina Lau, Paul Spoonley and Alia Cram are echoed across the country. I don't think people were were, were that hung up on um, him being a Pakistani. I think that he looked like he'd arrived from outer space to most people. I was just so staggered at the immensity of that decision and of the process. My parents worked in sort of Chinese takeaways and had restaurants, so they worked a lot, uh, long hours and worked a lot of hours. If you grew up in New Zealand, it's easy to imagine that every country in the world is like us. But that isn't the case, as sociologist Paul Spoonley explains. We typically refer to Australia, Canada, New Zealand... Israel and the USA as the five immigrant receiving countries, countries that have a a national project of building a nation through immigration. Building a nation through immigration. How does that work? In association with Massey University, this is Slice of Heaven, a podcast series about immigration in New Zealand when more people are coming than ever before. I'm Noelle McCarthy, and in this episode, we look at how the process of integration affects individuals, communities and the country itself. We'll go to a town whose institutions are being revitalised by new arrivals and look at the role education plays in cementing a sense of belonging while opening up new pathways for economic growth. We'll finish by touching on how politicians decide immigration settings for New Zealand. Colonists talked of Britain as home for a generation or two, sometimes for longer. But their descendants don't think that way now. Over time, roots grow, and that sense of belonging elsewhere shifts. I remember being back in Ireland on holiday and telling my dad I was sad to be going home. But you are home, he said. There was a theatrical outrage in his voice. But underneath that, real sadness too. New Zealand is home for me now, we both knew. Of course, that initial landfall, the arrival in a new place, is often charged... People have a natural tendency towards conservatism, outright suspicion even, and we're not immune to that here. 
As the poet Alan Curnow wrote, always to islanders, danger is what comes over the sea. I think we've got a lot of work to do and a long way to go. But I I think, and we probably have got an older generation of people who are quite close-minded to welcoming new people. I'm in Oamaru, talking to Christine Dorsey from the Waitaki Newcomers Network. Oamaru looked set for prosperity when it sent New Zealand's first shipment of frozen meat to Britain in 1882. But after early success, its fortunes slid to the point where the town's bright future seemed to be in the past. But a new influx of immigrants is boosting the local population to the point where Christine says there's now a mix of more than 50 ethnicities coming to grips with each other. Like, for instance, the other night we we have a drinks night once a month and we'd go to Scott's Brewery and um, there was a guy there the other night and he was from Iran. Now, often people would go, hmm, not sure about that. But no, they were, if if I take that person on board and say, hey, this is so-and-so, he's come from Iran, he's smiley, he's happy, then they become fascinated and they go and they talk to him and they learn about them, they learn about their culture. That direct contact with immigrants is essential for integration. In Oamaru, up to 20% of the population are Pacifica, a fast-growing community whose arrival here came through New Zealand's national sport. And that's all about contact. Uh, There's a lot more um, brown faces these days. Uh, You drive downtown and you see a lot of of brown kids and and, uh, a lot of parents, and um, we didn't have that back in the day, so it's it's definitely um, coloured everything up. Ralph Darling is player coach at Oamaru Old Boys Rugby Club. I think that rugby would be the would be the centre stone. I think um, it's where everyone kind of meets together on the Saturday, and then um, you know mixing and mingling after that. Probably they were Waitaki boys. I remember when I was there in the 60s. There was the odd big Tongan boy. Old Boys past president and patron Barry Mickle says links with the Pacific have grown organically, and on-field success has followed. Old boys have been North Otago club champions five of the last six years. Probably through the 80s we started to get the odd player over here and we helped them uh, financially to get here. We don't have any specific link. We're just uh, pretty much through our contacts were built up. Um, And then family, a lot of the boys' brothers have arrived. We've got uh, three brothers here from Samoa and two boys from the same family from Tonga. So, yeah, they tend to talk to their family or their friends or schoolmates. Current president Tonga Havea was one of the pioneers of the move. He says it isn't just rugby that draws the players. For start, I didn't come straight away to come play rugby. I got an uncle, heaps of relation in Auckland. To be honest, that's, again, I want a better standard of living. Simple as that. And... Any Pacific Island government, don't tell me I'm coming to play rugby. Not, it's not professional here at this level. Most of them are coming, 99.9, looking for a standard of better standard of living. We're pretty proud of the fact that of our boys, they're all working. Uh, the majority of them are married or in relationships and the majority of them have got children here and some of them are second generation so that's uh, they're getting really kiwi-fied. We've got so many different cultures in our team that everyone's adapted to each other just just naturally 
and um, that respect for each other has just grown over the years and um, now it's just the norm really. The reality is we wouldn't have had a club now without our Polynesian influence. And you know, it's right through the club now. Our coaches are Polynesian, our president's Polynesian, uh, our JAB coordinator is Polynesian. And they're just really good club members, you know, really uh, proud to wear our jersey. Yeah, we'll sing one verse. Another institution getting a new lease of life from immigrants is St Paul's Presbyterian Church. The monumental Victorian Gothic structure was built nearly 150 years ago. It would be interesting to know what the early founders of the church would think if they came back. <laughs> Reverend Rose Luxton has been the minister of St Paul's for the last seven years. Around half of her congregation are Pacifica. People in Auckland said, oh, you'll miss the multicultural nature. And I said, well, I thought I might, but it's actually, it's here as well. We've got a couple of, um, like, Palangi children, but it's mainly the young people. Our younger people are our Pacific people. Does it feel like home? Oh, yes. <laughs> After eight years here, yes. Silo Tainana and her cousin Marfa are two of a growing number of Tuvaluan members of Rose's congregation. I, I used to say to my family up in Auckland, who are still living up in Auckland, I used to say, this is the new... The, the real New Zealand. <laughs> the South Island is the real New Zealand, you know. Um, up in, in Auckland, we are so um, full on with our own community stuff and, you know, our own... And we, um, we don't have time to go out to the wider area, you know, of Auckland. Clustering together by identity is harder in smaller towns, making immigrants more likely to engage with the wider community. And it's like, this is New Zealand. <laughs> I've been in Auckland, it's just uh, Tuvalu, uh, you know, a part of Tuvalu, I brought it from Tuvalu and plant into, you know, Auckland. I felt like that when I was up in Auckland. But um, here it's just like, when we go up to Auckland for holidays, there was like, oh, here comes the Palangi family. And I think it's a mixture of values as well, you know, um, being born and bred up, you know, in Tuvalu and then coming into society like New Zealand, the values here in New Zealand. I, I, I'm not saying they're different, but I think it's just the, the way we do things and in particular areas of life, are different. CeeLo's cousin Marfa is also bringing up her children in New Zealand and says the tools she needs to give them here are different. Say, like, if you want your, your son to be a good fisherman, the tool will be different. You know, like, I'll give you... You must know how to read the tides, you know, you must know when the best fish comes, the weather. Whereas in here... If I teach the same tool to my son, my son said, I can buy it from the market, mum. You know, like, I will give, I will provide, try and provide a tool that's more relevant to his current living that I think will help him to, 
to live, you know, in future, like safely in future. Probably safety, things like, don't forget to lock your door because we do not lock our doors at home. We don't have doors anyway. <laughs> There's a bittersweet transition period when you start to turn towards your new country and you don't really know what to do with the old. After I told my dad I was going home to New Zealand, I was sitting on the tarmac in Dublin, homesick already for Ireland, crying my eyes out, with my phone full of messages from friends in Auckland, looking forward to seeing me when I got home. Integration starts with the people who make the move, but maybe it's really only completed by our children. If my daughter goes to school here, that will give her a deep, unambivalent connection to New Zealand. Education is the only way to their successful life here in New Zealand, in the New Zealand, you know, context. Education is the only way. That's what we have taught our kids, you know. And does that come from knowing that traditionally members of the community might have done jobs like labouring? Yes. You know, and wanting... Definitely. Wanting your kids yes. to do something else? Yes. Yeah, so right now I'm at year 12, so, and I'm doing level 3 statistics, so hopefully try to get scholarship for that and next year hopefully do level three calculus as well and it just grants us a bit of opportunity to try get into university to fulfill my passion to become a civil engineer. It's school athletics day at Waitaki Boys High where Jacob Tuasani, also from Tuvalu, has been a student since he came down from Auckland a couple of years ago. Love in Auckland it's like it's all separated, like someone stick with each other, Tongans will stick with each other, Tawalans stick with each other, but down here all the Pacific Islands come together and we're all one. Before I moved down I didn't really know where or what Omaru was, but now I'm down here I know that like it's, everyone's kind, especially Mr. Fida. Um he oh like he's a Tongan but he cares about all like not only us Polynesians, he cares about like the Pakia and New Zealand Europeans, he cares about everyone, the Maldives. Uh, every Wednesday, or every Thursday now, he um, takes classes after school to help us because some of us are struggling to get our uh, NCA credits, so he's putting all the effort in to help us pass. Marion Pacifica boys' uh, academic pathways is very poor uh, compared to, to other um, uh, students. Uh, so this year the boys did very, very well. Uh, achieving to that um, goal that we set up. Another ex-Aucklander, and originally a migrant from Tonga, Isaiah Fafita is head of the maths department at Waitaki Boys, as well as dean of Pacifica students. His understanding of their experience allows for targeted support for boys who may need some extra help. And that can bring a whole new dimension to their identity, the way they see themselves and the way New Zealand sees them. The goal was very clear and simple and the support from the parents was very good. And now the community... Uh, starting to see that their boys are, are not here just to play sport. Uh, academically, they, they, they can achieve. So it's an evolution, isn't it? Because rugby, we heard last night, was one of the ways in which the community, the Tongan community, originally sort of embedded itself in, in Amaru. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. But yeah. there's more, there's more to there, it There's more, there's always more. <laughs> and I think it is a good way of changing the perception of uh, the, the Pacific people.
That focus on education as a way into any host society is a common thread among immigrants, as Ali, Perlina and Paul outline. This is why migrant families privilege education so highly, is that... that um, if you do get to a point where you do have, uh, I mean, in his case, a specialist qualification in cardiology, you are valuable. And even my grandma, who, my grandma who is, you know, 80-something now, 90 actually, they just said, do whatever you want, just make sure that you're happy and make sure you're earning money using your brain. Don't, don't, earn, your, don't earn money using your hands like your parents had to. Immigrants come here for various reasons. One is the quality of the lifestyle. But one very important reason is education for their children. And those children, in terms of our education system, are performing very, very well. And as they leave the education system and come out into the community, they're going to provide the future leaders, the future deal breakers, the future innovators in our country. The proportion of um, Asian boys in the top streams is very, very high. Tim O'Connor is the headmaster of Auckland Grammar, a state school with an elite reputation and a student role that reflects the changing face of Auckland. He's seeing a shift in academic culture, led particularly by ambitious Asian students, and the knock-on effect is resonating through the school. Some of them are very able, so they have, have the base intellect, which obviously helps, but their preparedness to work is, is uh, very, very high and they're prepared to make sacrifices to actually achieve those sort of results. But it has a positive effect on everyone because that's what's happening in the school community, right? So those things are being celebrated, so aspirations get lifted as a consequence. Success breeds success. I mean, if I, I use an example of our ducks from a couple of years ago who... Um, not only would, was his uh, work ethic outstanding, he operated on four hours sleep a night. And he said, but that's because I want to achieve all of these things. BC Chole is the former ducks that Tim O'Connor mentioned. The University of Auckland is great, New Zealand is great. But as far as research or pursuing more opportunities in that sort of direction, it is much more limited than places like America or Europe. BC was born in Korea. He came here with his parents when he was two months old. I caught up with him on the phone from Princeton University, where he spent the last three years studying engineering. Tell me about getting into Princeton. What was involved? Tim said that you made a decision to only sleep for four hours a night. Is that true? true? In part. I didn't make up the sleep at other times of the day. And BC says there was no pressure from his parents. They didn't push me to do anything. They were telling me, like, just take it easy. Like, why are you driving yourself? <laughs> Just go to bed. This despite the stereotypes about tiger moms. Still, he agrees the correlation between Asian students and disproportionate academic success has its roots in a culture. I mean, it's not that all of a sudden all the Asian people started trying harder. I think part of it is the fact that, like, the demographics have been changing. Auckland is changing. I think there is a culture of aspiring to do well academically. Not that it's necessarily good or healthy. That might be part of why. BC's background, along with a growing sense of possibilities fostered at Auckland Grammar, encouraged him to aim for a global stage. Having like international opportunities, knowing what things are out there through international experiences or like competitions, I became like acutely aware that I might be good, but like there's a lot more out there. So it's in that way, it's humbling. I, I think there's a, there's a Korean saying: if you only seeing kind of what's around you, like in the small little area that you are. You're like a frog in the, in the well. You don't see what's outside the well, so you think you're the best in the well. 
BC's gone from Auckland Grammar to a much bigger well. It's too early to know whether he'll come back to New Zealand, but he says it still feels like home. I'll probably stay in the States just because of work and the opportunities that are here. But that doesn't mean that like I've abandoned my roots in any sense. You probably noticed my accent is probably somewhat American right now because I've been around basically no one but Americans for three years. But I think I'll always be at heart a Kiwi. Having started out studying engineering, BC's now moving into neuroscience. When we talked, he was about to begin a stint working in an interdisciplinary brain science lab in Princeton. He's especially relishing the opportunity to work with other researchers from across a range of disciplines. It's a pretty amazing biological machine. And wanted to figure out like how that works. And then I also always had like an interest in like math and science and programming or engineering, like physics, that sort of stuff. And especially recently when it's becoming much more computational and much more quantitative, it's like a great field where these areas are crossing. These areas are crossing. It could be a slogan for globalisation. An interconnected, accelerated world where standing still means being left behind. The intellectual curiosity that took BC to Princeton, where he could mingle with other talented students in an environment that encourages cross-pollination, that looks a lot like the kind of cutting edge that will be useful to New Zealand in facing the future. Immigration is not entirely about people from the world coming to New Zealand. It's actually often about New Zealand joining the world and particularly the part of the world in which we live, the Asia-Pacific region, isn't it? In regards to China being a world power and the fear, I think that comes down to lack of understanding. I think it's not understanding the culture, it's not understanding the people, it's not understanding how they go about business, and all that can change. All you, That just takes being open and wanting to understand. What you see is a, a, a story which is unfolding through different layers. And, of course, we've had that period where there's been a... Well, effectively, 100% of the arrivals have been from the UK and Ireland to the Pacifica migration and more recently the migrants from Asia. And each of those is adding a different sort of geological layer to the story of New Zealand. Education isn't just the means by which immigrants get to mesh with New Zealand. It's also become a $4 billion industry. As we saw in the last episode, the system isn't perfect – but the flow-on effects to the New Zealand economy are significant, not least a burgeoning homegrown tech industry that needs workers. I come from Shanghai, which is a very modern city. When I came here, I don't have even Auckland don't have like a top shop, and uh, the food choice is not that much. The bright lights of Auckland may have seemed a little dim in comparison with his hometown when Edison Shu came to New Zealand five years ago. But after getting his master's in computer science at AUT, he's now a software developer at an IT company on Auckland's North Shore, where the majority of his colleagues are immigrants. There's a lot of people from uh, India, Napier, oh, sorry, it's Nippur. <laughs> yeah. Lake Napier, yeah. Nepal. Yeah, and Asian, a lot of immigrants here. So it's very multicultural here. I think most of software company in New Zealand is like this. And there's a straightforward reason for that. When I think back of my university, in my class, there's a lot of foreign people, like Asians, like Chinese, Indians, or even Russians. 
but because probably because I study a master degree, but I really seen like local people, and most of them are just um, like managers stuff. They want promotion, and they came back to read uh, to study a master degree. Another former international student, now Edison's boss, Ray Liu, highlights the struggle to find people with skills like Edison's as the tech sector mushrooms. There's a big difference between someone can do it, someone cannot. You know, you got a lot of people they can tell they tell you that they can do it, but uh, not many people can really do a good job. So the selection process is really, really tricky and important. Even though information and communications technology is New Zealand's third largest export sector, there's a global shortage of IT workers. Small companies are doing a really good job in New Zealand. There are a lot of them, very creative, innovative. But the thing is about number one obstacle for them is really you know, the manpower. This is a vital future industry, contributing $16 billion in GDP, employing nearly 100,000 workers, with revenue growing 12% year-on-year and productivity increases outperforming other sectors. It's an industry whose importance is amplified, given all those old jobs that are going to be replaced by technology. Next year, we'll see the full integration of digital technologies to the New Zealand curriculum, helping to prepare the workforce for tech jobs. But it will take a while for those workers to come on stream. Like Japan and Singapore, they focus on a business model that brings efficiency and productivity and that they develop really well. And if New Zealand can do this, you know, similar things, in particular in IT industry, I think that's a great future. For all this optimism about a tech sector that currently relies on immigration for its lifeblood, weeks out from an election, the record high numbers of new arrivals remains a contentious issue. You know, you're happy to take things that you get from China, all the positives and and all the things that you love about it, but then you can't cherry pick. But I am concerned that the numbers arriving are stretching our resources as communities but also in terms of our core institutions and we might have needed to have dialed back the numbers uh, a few years ago. So if you have a problem with immigrants in New Zealand you need to look at every single person that you see around you and they are there because the government has at one time or another wanted them there. So how does the government decide? Immigration Minister Michael Woodhouse says it's about three things. It's about quality, it's about clarity and it's about Kiwis. So we need skills. We're actually in a global competition for, for skills, for investment, for innovation. We also have in some parts of the country and in some industries high demand for labour that can't be met domestically. And it's important that those who are coming in are clear about the circumstances under which they are coming. And then, of course, uh, it's about Kiwis. It's about Kiwis coming home, Kiwis not leaving, Kiwis being encouraged to be at the front of the queue for that growing number of jobs. Michael Woodhouse says immigration settings have such wide-ranging and deep implications for policy that even within the government itself, there's a broad range of views on how they should work. Some are quite liberal about allowing people to come and stay. Some are much more conservative in the sense that we need to have a much stronger Kiwis first approach um, and, and are very cautious about the number of people coming in, particularly to Auckland. We'll look more at those choices, what they are and how we can make them in the next episode. 
Whatever the settings, policy will still have unforeseen consequences. Paul Spoonley says that while we can try to predict the economic impact of immigration, what happens when individuals arrive can be quite different. These are skilled, educated people. They operate in ways that suit themselves. And so what happens post-arrival is very, very interesting. So we, we approved a large number of very skilled immigrants from Korea in the 1990s. But many of them came here to semi-retire. If you look at the golf industry in New Zealand, then they've had a huge impact, ownership of golf courses or of um, golf shops. But we thought they were coming here to contribute to our skills pool or to growing new businesses, but they're, they're trotting out to the golf course. And then, a few years later, this happens. With a flare, Lady Cole is the youngest woman ever to win a major championship. Not everyone becomes a world champion, but the people who come here want to be part of the New Zealand story. They find ways to contribute, to integrate, to make this country home. They change New Zealand, and New Zealand changes them. So neither of my grandmas speak English, so my, one of my, my mum's mum in particular, she tried to take English lessons. So she came over when she was in her 50s, and that's quite late to, to move to a completely new country. She went to church and she didn't understand what the priest was saying, but that's fine, she was happy to be there. And so um, I used to give her a bit of stick for that. I knew I was different, Noel. I knew I was different. Uh, there, was, there was no getting around that. But um, I was also drum major of the school pipe band. I went to a Scottish school and a Presbyterian school and we wore kilts on a Friday. And, and yeah, I was actually very successful. Have you ever heard of mace flourishing? This episode of Slice of Heaven was produced by me, Noelle McCarthy, and John Daniel for Bird of Paradise Productions and Radio New Zealand in association with Massey University. The sound engineer was Andre Upston. Executive producers were Justin Gregory and Tim Watkin. Thanks to Dave Dobbin for the title and for our theme tune. You can listen to every episode of Slice of Heaven on iTunes and Spotify or at radionz.co.nz. Give us a rating while you're there. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.